if you have a Bible, turn to Joshua. We're going to be uh, reading out of Joshua chapter 5 today and trying to glean some, um, some truth from the Lord before we, uh, we come to the table. And um, we've been talking for the last uh, four or five weeks about leadership and how the Lord can really teach us through the book of Joshua about um, how to be leaders in our own lives. And it's an interesting thing about leaders because as leaders, we have a vision. And that vision is typically something that only we can see. And when we're leading, we're trying to lead people to something that we see uh, that's not visible yet. We're trying to bring into reality something that doesn't exist. Uh, but we have a vision for it, whether it's with our company or maybe it's a vision that you have for your family or a vision that you have for your, your marriage, or maybe for your kids, that God's given you a vision that you're leading them to and what you hope for them in their lives. Or maybe it's your own life that you're bringing discipline, moral discipline to your life, uh, or trying to bring certain areas of your life into alignment with what the Lord desires for you, or you have a vision of what it's like to incorporate contemplation into your life and time with God or understanding the Word. But you know, it's funny how sometimes the big picture uh, gets in the way of the big picture. Does that make clear? Is that clear to you? Maybe I can explain a little bit. Uh, for those of you that are single, uh, or for those of you that are married and uh, don't have kids, l- let me let you in on something as someone who's been down the road of having little kids. When our kids were little, uh, Renee and I thought it would be a great way to bond our family together and to unite us as a unit to have family work days in the yard. And so we would come up with a list of stuff that we would want to accomplish with our little kids and with us uh, as family work day. And so we would lay out all the tools and get everybody little gloves, you know, and just you know, this is going to be fun. We're going to start the morning with like blueberry pancakes, you know, trying to convince them that work really is just, it's just fun when you do it together. And so I give them my general patent speech at the table while they're wolfing down too much sugar. First big mistake, all right? But they're eating and I'm talking to them about today's a day where we're, we're together, we're going to push back the war against weeds and We are going to declare victory over the leaves in our yard and that we will stand as a united front against all, you know, the darkness of anything evil that's failing our yard to where we can succeed. And I'd give them a list of here's the things that we want to accomplish and here's everybody's task, here's who's in charge, here's where the tools are, let's go. And it was amazing because after that inspirational talk, usually my kids are so motivated that they would work They wouldn't eat lunch. They would push through dinner. I would have to make them go to bed at night. No, you know, we get out in the yard and what happens? If you have done this before, you know exactly what happens. That arguments break in, you know. I want the brown rake. He's got the green rake, you know. And kids are going, I already have a blister. Do I have to do this, you know. And then just all kinds of things happen. Like we get attacked by the killer uh, butterflies that kind of... They're killers. You know, anything to get us distracted from doing anything in the yard. You know, simple questions like, why do we hate weeds? 
And it's frustrating for us as parents because we're trying to teach them something and we're trying to get something done. And it's funny because sometimes people are the biggest obstacle in us getting our goals accomplished as leaders. Matter of fact, sometimes people are the very reason why we don't accomplish the goals that we want to accomplish. And sometimes, and I know this is radical to think about, when I say peoples, I'm including myself into that category. That we get in the way of goals. Well, let me give you something that we're going to talk about today out of Joshua. People are the goal when it comes to leaders. And as leaders, we are going to lead out of our blessings or we are going to lead out of our curse. We will lead out of one of those two things. Now let's try to unpack this a little bit. Go to Joshua chapter 5 and verse 1. Somebody give me a page number. 151? Okay, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Now, let me bring you up to speed. God had taken his people out of Egypt through the desert for 40 years, had brought them up to the Jordan. He had said to them, you guys are going to inhabit the promised land. You're going to get it. And then the Jordan was in flood stage, and all the people go, oh, no, Jordan's at flood stage. How are we going to cross it? God says, no problem. Stops the Jordan at flood stage. They all cross over on dry land. Now they're in the promised land, and the hearts of the kings are melted. Now what is the goal? Why are they coming into the promised land? Are they on a camping trip? No, their, their goal is to conquer The promised land, right? It was inhabited by seven different tribes. This was the time to strike. Now is the time to move. Their hearts have melted. They are afraid. They are beaten before they even get on the field. So now's the time to shoot the gun, start the game, win the victory. Right? Yes? Leaders? Verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Hey, Why don't we make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again? Does anybody find that humorous? (laughs) There's not a guy in here that finds that humorous. So Joshua did exactly that. He made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites. (laughs) Why did he do that? Well, we're told why. If you read through uh, verses 4 through 6, all the men that were in the desert that were disobedient to the Lord had been circumcised back in Egypt. But they didn't circumcise any of their children in the desert. We don't know why. But now all those guys are dead because they could not inherit the promised land, which is another sermon. But now their sons, the sons of the slaves, are now warriors, and they're going into into the promised land as the new Israel, to take over the land. But none of them had been circumcised. So God says to Joshua, hey, let's do it now. So verse 7. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. 
And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained there where they were in camp until they were healed. Chuckle, chuckle. Feel free. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, so the place has been called Gilgal, which means to roll away to this day. <laughs> okay, if you notice that little, that little line in there, it says, And they remained in Gilgal until they healed. Well, uh, it was because there was nothing else they could do. Nothing. How inconvenient. They're there to conquer a land, right? It gets better. Verse 10. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camping at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grains. The manna stopped that day. Remember when they were in the desert, God provided their needs by bringing them manna every day that they could eat. And they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year they ate the produce of Canaan. What's interesting here is that not only did God say to Joshua, circumcise everybody. But he also said, hey, let's throw a party. Now we're going to celebrate something. Now let's get a little picture here. Because you remember last week we talked about that there were 40,000 warriors that crossed the Jordan first. These were men that were armed to the T, and they were crossing the Jordan, preparing themselves to go into battle against what they perceived were going to be the kings of the promised land that had united against them and were just over the other hill, and as soon as they came across the river, they were going to be attacked. So they had sent 40,000 warriors out ahead of them to protect them as they come across the Jordan. They didn't know what to expect. And in the midst of that party, looking over the hills for the warriors that were coming, that's when God said, no, I'm going to disable you and I'm going to put you in bed for a month. Every fighting man in your company is going to be in his tent for a month of healing. They would be defenseless. They could do nothing. And then on top of that, he says, we're going to throw a celebration, which is a seven or eight day celebration which starts with a day of fasting and ends with a day of fasting. And in between, there's a lot of rituals and ceremonies. If you've ever been to a Seder service, this is what it is. What is God doing? And I want you to grasp this because this is the meat of what we're going to talk about today. God was saying something very powerful to them, and he's saying something very powerful to us as the body of Christ here today. Get this. God is saying... I care more about you than I care about anything you're going to accomplish for me. I care more about you than anything you're ever going to accomplish for me. And let me take it a step further. I care more about you knowing that I care about you more than I care about anything that you will accomplish for me. See, what's amazing is, is that this is the God who stopped the Jordan River, right? Why did he need the Israelites to go in and do battle against the seven tribes? Why did he need that? Did God need that? Was God sitting in heaven going, you know, I just hope that they practice that spear-throwing thing really well because they're going to need that when they get over there. 
Was God chewing his fingernails, wondering whether or not these people could accomplish what he's asking them to go do? I don't think so. Here they are laying on the bed. They're suffering. And if that was you, what would be going through your head right now? You're surrounded by your enemy. You're in the enemy turf. You've been in a new place. You've never been in this place before. And now you're powerless and you can't do anything. What would be going through your mind? Would that be difficult for you? Have you ever been sick when you had a lot to do? Have you ever been and worked through it? Yes? You know, have you ever been sick and have a lot to do and you just can't work through it? And the misery of going to bed when on your mind is a ton of stuff that you got to get done? (laughs) I can only imagine these warriors who'd waited for this moment, who had trained for this moment for a generation, and now they're powerless on their beds. And the Lord was doing something. He was killing the curse that it's up to us. God was squishing the curse out of them that this is up to you. And this is love. It doesn't feel like love, but it really is love because love is hardly ever efficient but it is always effective. And it's the currency that we deal in as Christ followers. And there's two ways that he was crushing this it is up to you mentality. This is up to you lifestyle. The first thing he was doing was circumcision. Now circumcision was a mark of the covenant. It was given to Abraham and Abraham gave it to all the generations after him and told his children and his children's children to wear this mark because it was a mark that said, I will be your God. God said this, I will be your God and you will be my people. This was a mark that they were set apart from the rest of the world, that there was something special about them, that God had called them the ones that he set his affection on, his delight on. This was a sign that said, we will never be left or abandoned by the God of the universe because he is with us. So let's go to the New Testament, because that's not true about us today. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2 and try to understand this thing called circumcision just a little bit better. Colossians chapter 2. Somebody has a page number. Throw that at me too. Eight seventeen. Listen to uh, what the Lord has to say. This is Paul. In him, you were also circumcised. Now, he's talking about us here. In him, you were also circumcised in putting off the sinful nature. Not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Now, Christ is doing a circumcision. Having been buried with him in baptism... And raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Jesus comes in and he cuts away the flesh. He cuts away my, my unsaved part of me, that part of me that is an old man 
so that he can do something remarkable. And what is he doing? Well, it says here three things. One, he made us alive. We were dead, and because of the work of Christ on the cross, I'm made alive. The second thing he did was he forgave us our sins, which we talk a lot about here. My past sins, my present sins, my future sins, he's forgiven them all. But I want to look at the third thing that he says there. He says he canceled the written code. What does that mean that he canceled the written code? Because this is huge. What he's saying is, this is not about what you have done. This is not about what you are doing. And this is not about what you will do. God breaks the measuring stick. He cancels the code. And what does that mean? Meaning by any standard that God takes you and measures you to see if you measure up, God says, I've thrown that measuring stick away. And there's only one measuring stick now is that we are in Christ, we measure up. There's no more measuring stick. And this is really difficult for us to grab a hold of. Let me explain. When I was in high school, uh, you know, I was like you guys probably that, you know, my parents, uh, they were whacked. They didn't understand anything. I knew all the right answers, you know. And, uh, but no, you know, there's this sense of I want to, I want to honor my parents, you know, I don't want to get in trouble, I want to do the right thing. And uh, even though I was just as rebellious as crazy, I still didn't want to get in trouble. And I remember the night that I wrecked my mom and my dad's car uh, together. You know, that, that right there, that will put the fear of the Lord in you. When you run one, your dad's car into your mother's car, all right? And you have to go in and say, I didn't wreck the car. It's plural. I wrecked the cars. You know, that's a, that's a horrifying experience. And I remember going in and, you know, I'm just shaking because I'm just crying before I even get the words out of my mouth. And I go to my dad and I go, I wrecked the cars. And after the shock, you know, and we got him up off the floor and everything, he does this. He puts his arms on my shoulder because my dad was pretty laid back and he laughed and he goes, it's okay. We'll get through this. And uh, I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Time out. I just could not accept that. Now, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I just could not accept that my dad had just let me off the hook of wrecking both our cars. Because even though he said... Hey, it's an accident, that kind of stuff happens, we have insurance, we'll get through this. I started making deals with my dad. No, 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 dad, I'll pay for it. Like, I didn't even have a job, all right? But I'm still, no, dad, seriously, I'm going to pay for this. And, and if they can't fix it, I promise you, I, I will buy you a brand new car. <laughs> making all kinds of deals because I could not believe that my father had taken the measuring stick and he had moved it away and said, that's okay. I couldn't accept that because so much of my life was so measured by my measuring sticks. It's kind of like the story of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son comes home and his father embraces him and he says to his dad, no, dad, I'm here as a servant. And his father said, no, your identity and who you are is not negotiable. I am not going to enter into a place of negotiating with you who you are because I know who you are. And the son kept holding up the measuring stick and the father kept taking the measuring stick and throwing it away and saying, no, that doesn't work here. That doesn't work here. 
You know, I've got all kinds of measuring sticks, and I know you do too. The things that you hold up to your life to ask yourself, do you matter? For you, it may be money. Are you making enough money? Do you have enough money? Do you have the fruits of money? For you, it may be grades. Are you making the right grades? Are you measuring up well enough? Maybe it's your weight. Maybe when you look at the scale, and, you, and that scale, that number right there gives you your value. That's your measuring stick as to whether or not you're good, bad, worthy, not worthy, whatever. Maybe it's other people. Is everybody happy with you? Maybe when somebody gets mad at you, it wrecks your whole world because that's your measuring stick. I've got to keep everybody happy. I've got to have everybody believe that I'm perfect and I've got it all together and that they're the number one thing in my life. I don't know. Maybe for you it's Friday Night Lights. Have you all ever seen that show? Friday Night Lights, you know? Remember that great quote from the movie? You know, he holds up his championship ring and memories and babies. That's what it's all about right there. Get you some. Maybe that, that's what it is for you. Memories and babies, you know, that your measuring stick is do you have good enough memories? Is your life one that's worth talking about? Is it memorable? Do you have adventures and stories and do you have babies? A legacy. Maybe it's some weird, like you can drive down my street and you can see what some of my neighbors, they live their lives for yard measuring sticks. I refuse to participate in that competition, as you will see if you ever come over to my house. But I look at my neighbors, like, they got sprinkler systems, and they've got people that work for them in their yard, which isn't fair. I, and they've got, you know, green grass. They don't have any weeds in their grass. See, here's what's amazing, is if you're going to be a leader, and you're going to say that my leadership is going to be in partnership with God as the Israelites came into the promised land, guess what's going to happen? God is going to put you in an impossible situation. I'm telling you that right now. I mean, in praying about this morning, I was praying, Lord, Lord, I pray that you would bring just awareness of yourself today to this community of people. That this communion table would just bring us to a place where we see you like we've never seen you before, that you'd bring us to repentance, that you would teach our hearts how to walk in just certainty and security and also obedience, that you would just bring about a move of your spirit in this room today. Guess what? I have no power to make any of that happen. When we're following the Lord, he takes us to places to where we truly find that we're powerless. Hmm. Why is that so important? Because if I'm sitting there measuring my power and I'm being walked into a powerless situation, then I'm going to live under the curse of my measuring stick. I'm going to condemn myself and constantly show that I don't measure up. And as a leader, when I live under the curse personally of my own measuring sticks, I force everybody that works under me or lives under me to live under my measuring sticks as well. I pass the curse on. See, it's not just enough that this be true, that the Lord Jesus Christ lifted the curse and he says now the written code is taken away and it's the code of of the rules and the law and what you've done and not done. That's what got nailed to the cross to where there's now no charge against me. I stand as one not only forgiven, but now I've been made holy because of the work of Christ. 
I stand as one that has been fully redeemed. And I don't just stand in this place of, gee, God, thank you for what you did for me, and I really appreciate that. I stand over here in the position of son, in the position of Jesus, where I say, you're my father, I'm your son. I've been brought into the family. I've been made holy by the work of Jesus Christ, and I wear his righteousness. The measuring stick got broke, and my value now is found in one place, and that is that the blood of Jesus Christ is poured over me. Okay, but it's not just enough for this to be true. I'm going to challenge you now because God says it's more important or maybe it's just as important that you know it's true. What does that mean? In Romans 12, it says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we need to renew our minds this morning? If I don't believe what I just said for me, guess what? I will not believe it for you or anybody I'm leading. I will eventually, I'll eventually, if I'm leading you, I will curse you the, the same way that I'm cursing myself. Let me put it in a way maybe you can understand. If you refuse to deal with sin in your life, everybody that's in your circle, you're forcing them to deal with it. If you don't want to face your curse, then you're cursing everybody in your circle with the curse that you are cursing yourself with and won't bring what I just talked about to How do we aware, wear our aliveness? How do we wear our forgiveness? How do we wear the fact that the measuring stick got broke? The Passover. Not only do they circumcise them, so God would say, it's my work. I'm the one doing it. It's all me. Trust that. Let go of the fact that you can do this because you can't. And then they did the Passover. And what was the Passover about? Well, it was a celebration. Seven days, as we said, maybe eight days, depending on who you read. The purpose was to remember. When they were back in Egypt, you remember the plagues, and the plagues came that uh, they began to build, and the very last plague was the Passover plague, where the Lord said, tonight I want you as Israelites to take a spotless lamb, I want you to, to slaughter this spotless lamb, and I want you to take its blood, and I want you to smear it over your doorpost. And when the spirit of death comes through Egypt and sees the blood over your household, it'll pass over your home and go on to take the life of the firstborn. Amazing. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 17 it says, these are a shadow of the things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. That what we're experiencing in the Old Testament was a shadow foretelling about something that was about to happen. And what was it foretelling? In John chapter 1, verse 29, it says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you think it's a mistake that John called Jesus the Lamb of God? Paul called him in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, our Passover Lamb. What is he saying? Well, it was at the Lord's table, this table right here. This was established at Passover that Jesus was celebrating Passover with his disciples. And in Luke chapter 22, he says, and he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body given for you. This is my body. He took the Passover bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body now broken as the Passover lamb and I give it to you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus, the Passover lamb, shed his own blood so that death passes us over when that blood is on us. You know, it's interesting because what does that mean for us to remember that this is true about me? For me to realize that as a leader, when God calls me into these situations, he's put his mark on me and he has said, this is my work and I am working. Lean into what I'm doing in this community and remember Remember that you are covered by the blood of the Lamb. Because sometimes it's easy to have these vague feelings. And these feelings like, well, that Holy Spirit stuff and that God stuff, man, that, you know, that works for you, Rand. I mean, you're a preacher. You know, it's got to work for you, right? Isn't that kind of like in the job description? But for me, I don't really always feel that. I don't feel that I'm unique. I don't feel like that God is working in all the ways in my life. I feel like I'm messed up. I feel like that, that I'm so cursed that I can't even give myself compassion. In this Luke chapter 22 passage, right after Jesus says this, which should have been the aha moment where the disciples were like, oh, we get it. Guess what happens? They start to argue. Here are the disciples, all right? These are like the, the super Christians. And they start to argue. Over and, well, who is it that's going to betray you? It's not going to be me. It'll never be me. Hey, I bet it's you. I bet you're the one. Yeah. And Peter leans over in the midst of this argument. And guess, this is what he does. Okay, the disciples are all arguing. It's you, it's you. I know it's you, man. You know, I thought you smelled funny today. And Peter, it's a room full of guys. And Peter leans over to Jesus and he whispers. He goes, guess what? I'll never betray you. It'll never be me. I will, I will take a sword for you, Jesus. You, will, you, don't, you don't even, I know you're the Messiah, but you don't even know how much I love you. I could write a song about you and sing it right now. Matter of fact, I would go to prison for you. He says that. And Jesus leans over and goes, yeah, right. Before the sun sets, arises, you're, you're going to deny me three times. Peter's like, hey, I know you're the Messiah, but you were way off on this one. You could not be more wrong. Here's what I want to ask you is this. Why didn't Jesus set Peter aside and say, hey, man, come on in the kitchen for a minute? Because you, you need to listen to me. Because I need to coach you how to not deny me you're going to have three chances to be faithful to me, Peter, between now and tomorrow morning. So let me coach you, okay, when the slave woman comes up to you, okay? You just want to, you want to stand your ground, man. She's big and she's tough, but come on, man. You got to hide your fear. And when she says, hey, weren't you one of those with Jesus? You need to just bow up and say, yeah. What, you got a problem with that? That's what you needed. You know, why didn't Jesus do that? Seriously, why didn't Jesus coach Peter on how to succeed? Why didn't he? God was more concerned with Peter's freedom from the curse that he was living under than he was coaching Peter not to make mistakes. Because what was the curse that Peter was living under? It was his own arrogance and pride that although everybody else will fail you, I will not. 
And what did that curse do? It judged everybody else in the room except for him. And then what did it do when he finally realized, yeah, I am the weakest link? It cursed him. He went fishing. He said, I don't want to do anything with Jesus. And Jesus even came back to Peter, remember? And Peter saw him and he jumped out of the boat and, you know, he swam to him and they're on the, on the line, land and Jesus is cooking him some fish and he goes, hey, Peter, do you love me? Remember that? He asked him three times and Peter could never look at him and say, yes, I love you. Why? Because Peter was cursing himself. I have failed. I've always held myself up to this measuring stick. And I just, I just, I blew it. I blew it so big that there's no way that I can honestly look at you and say that I love you. Look what I did. That's not love, is it? Look at the measuring stick of what love is. And Jesus was coming in and saying, Peter, you've got to break the measuring stick because I nailed it to the cross. That happened at the Lord's Supper, the very first one. When we live in God's value of us, we begin to value others. We see that actually loving other people is the very purpose that God has made us leaders. Galatians says it in 5.6. This is all that matters. All that matters. Faith expressing itself in love. Hmm. What does that look like? I think it has a lot to do first with being loved and understanding that we've been set aside and remembering who we are. So we're about to come to this table and, um, and prepare our hearts for that. But before we talk about this table, let's just pause for a second, all right? Just pray. Lord, thank you for this table. Thank you for your goodness to us. Lead us in this place, Lord. Let us feast on you, Father. The Lord tells us, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As those that follow Christ, we, we participate in this sacrament that the Lord has given us for two reasons. One, that we would come and remember the redemption that is ours, that the measuring stick has been broken, that we've been set free, and that we're, what we're called into, we know that this is by the power and the strength of the Lord that any of this is accomplished. But it also says that we proclaim, that we come to proclaim this redemption first in our own lives and then in the lives of the world around us. So it's a table of repentance, a place where we come and we put down those things that keep us from living in what the Lord has shown us. And it's also a place of picking up, putting down and picking up. Picking up his love for us afresh, his care for us, his nurture for us. I want to encourage you that this table is not for everybody. If you're not a Christ follower here today, if that's not a part of your life, if that's not something that you've ever experienced, this table's not for you. Um, this is for those that understand and have received that grace that's through the blood of Jesus Christ.
So we'd encourage you just to continue to experience what's going on here. Stay in your seat. Write out all the questions you have. We'd love to talk to you about that. But this table is also blocked from those of us in this room that know Christ, but we're playing games with Christ where we're, we're saying, I'll, I'll let you have this, but not this. So kind of, you know, we're doing this here. Come close, but go away. And Jesus is just saying, that's not love. We all know that love is an all-in proposition. And this table is what calls us back to that all-in proposition. Now, what does that mean? Some of us can get that in our heads and get it all twisted up. If you desire this and say, Lord, I want to want this more than anything else in my life, this table's for you. Come to this table. But if your heart is divided, then I encourage you to do, dis- do business with your own heart before you come to this table. Okay. The way we do it here at Midtown is the music uh, starts to play and you enjoy this time of worship. In prayer, just come on up when you're ready. When you come to the kneelers and you're ready to receive communion, put your hands out and the servers will serve you. If you'd like for us to pray for you when you come up, just cross your chest and we'll enter in the journey with you. All right. Let's begin.